Will I still have a house in a month? Home is love. Affordable housing really fills a need. Home is hope. You're always grateful to have a roof over your head. Eden Housing is that hope. Welcome to the Affordable Housing Podcast, brought to you by Eden Housing. When journalists write about housing, the topics include everything from housing affordability to neighborhood change. Hi, I'm Joanne Green, and on this episode of the Affordable Housing Podcast, brought to you by Eden Housing, I'm in conversation with LA Times reporter Liam Dillon. Housing is Liam's beat, and he's been at the Times since 2016. Prior to focusing on housing, Liam covered state politics and policy for the Times Sacramento Bureau. He's a graduate of Georgetown University and has also covered politics in Southwest Florida and San Diego. And Liam co-hosts a podcast about affordable housing as well called Gummy Shelter. So Liam, welcome to this podcast and tell us if you would a sentence or two about your podcast. Yeah, sure. So thank you so much for having me. This is really a delight. So I, I appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah. So every couple of weeks, uh, myself and a colleague in Sacramento, Matt Levin, who works for uh, Cal Matters, a nonprofit there, kind of take a look at sort of key housing issues going on around the state. And we try to do it in a bit of a fun way and hopefully we're successful. Uh, and so, yeah, if you want to kind of keep up to date on what's going on in Sacramento policy uh, and also we you know talk about kind of broader housing conversations in different locations around the state. And so this is we hope it's the best way to do that. Excellent. Well, my sources tell me that in just a few short years, you've become the preeminent housing reporter in California. So A, congratulations. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. And B, yeah, yeah. What, what drew you to the topic and, and what's made you want to dive so deeply into the politics and policies related to housing? So you mentioned some of my my, my background. Um, I, so I came to the LA Times in 2016 after writing about local government in, in, in San Diego and other places. Uh, and when I was coming, I, I wanted to kind of come up with a list of key issues and topics that were really important to folks in the state that were not really being covered so much. And so there was an opening for someone to kind of jump in. And so um, I, there really, at the time, was not anybody in Sacramento, any journalists writing about housing issues as part of their assignment. Uh, maybe if there was a bill that came up, but it wasn't like like a focus and so um obviously you know at that time uh as uh, and even worse since there's a state is a huge housing crisis and so i decided that it was something that that someone should take on and i think over time i became really intrigued by uh, sort of understanding how many layers there are when you're writing about housing or talking about housing or thinking about housing it's not just about um you know, laws or home prices or things like that. Really, almost every single societal, interesting societal issue is run through the issue of where you live, whether they're issues of race and class, whether they're issues of, you know, generational equity, environmental issues, I think even more, more you know, more pressing now than in the past. Uh, education, uh, oftentimes where you go to school is determined by where you live. And if you think about it, so many fascinating things run through the topic of housing that it just became something that I was just became obsessed with writing about. Understandably. And you're preaching yeah. to the choir here. We understand <laughs> um, the levels of complexity are daunting sure, and sure. then administrations change. So right. the issues continue to change. Can you talk a little more about the scale of California's housing crisis? Why? Maybe you have some insight into this. Is housing so unaffordable here and what is going to make it more affordable? Sure. Well, there's a short and glib answer, but I think to a certain extent it's correct, which is that there's not enough housing um, and that as much for the people who want to live in California. So and supply 
supply and demand. Well, y- yes. I mean, that's again, the glib answer, right? Short and glib answer, right? Obviously there's a certain, but I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. Um, and I think, you know, particularly once you start de- delving into more of the nuances, those who really can't afford to live here are those at the lower income, uh, the lower income spectrum, right? Um, and that's in- that's increasingly becoming, uh, expanding in the sense that um, now this is a problem, which let's be honest, has, a- has affected lower income populations in California really ever since California's being been around, you know, I mean, a lot of my work takes me to try to understand what's going on in the 40s, 50s, 60s here in California. And poor people always struggled to find housing in California, period, right? I think what's perhaps changed now, and frankly, why it's in more of the um, uh, uh, regular media conversation is that you have middle class folks and, and frankly, you know, whiter folks who are dealing with this problem, perhaps at a higher level than they were in the past. And now that I will use your phrase, whiter folks are uh, being impacted. You think that's what is um, causing there to be more attention in the media? Yes. Um, I think I, I think that that, you know, is is in many ways driving coverage, uh, you know, uh, 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 both income and race. Absolutely. Yeah. So what what's going to make a difference? Well, um, I mean, I'm not asking you to solve the whole problem right. unless, of course, you have the answer. I have many ideas, to, many ideas. Right, 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 right. But um, I think I, I, I think what's interesting about this time is I think there a bit of a reckoning in coming to an understanding, at least at the state level, that things that have happened in California over probably since the 70s have in many ways led to the circumstances that, that we're in now, whether it's, and again, a lot of debates over the extent to which each of, the, each of these factors are causing the problem, but I think it's pretty undeniable that they all have a role in some way, whether it's the restrictions under the California Environmental Quality Act, which in, in many cases can make it more difficult to build, particularly in areas that are already built, right, where there's neighbors to, 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 to uh, express concerns. Um, I think uh, the California's tax structure, which was um, really put into place in 1978 when Proposition 13 passed, which allows for, um, you know, caps on property taxes and and, and property taxes dependent on when you purchased your home. Um, I think that has, um, you know, it, it was put into place in part to help save elderly folks from being taxed out of their homes at that time, but has now had a lot of downstream effects where, um, you know, folks just by sort of winning the lottery of uh, being lucky enough to be able to afford housing in California in the 50s, 60s, 70s now have, you know, built un- really unimaginable amounts of wealth uh, simply because that's where they are without really being taxed on that wealth, right? Because their property taxes are, are locked in place. So that's just two examples, I think, of policies that have been in place in, in California for a long time that are now leading to some of the problems that we have now and have been a bit of s- kind of sacred cows in, in the state politically. And I think there's a growing realization, however, that to really try to fix this, we have to start thinking about um, uh, modifying these uh, these policies in some way. Maybe even repealing Prop 13. Well, I, I, look, I mean, so I, I'm going to answer this, and, and I'm, I need to be, you know, I want everybody to be mindful that you know my role is less about. Um, you know, saying this is what I think needs to be done and more about trying to point people to what I think sort of best research says, you know, best kind of practices say about trying to 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 fix these policy or fix these issues without sort of fear of saying something that would be impolitic. Right. I, I'm, I'm able to do that the same way a lot of academics are. So, you know, you you know, I, I remember a story I did a few years back trying to understand uh, what it might take, the governor, current governor, Gavin Newsom, has pledged uh, for to, to, to help support building 500,000 new homes or three and a half million new homes between uh, this year, 2019 and 2025, right? And some context is that's roughly, you know, four times what 
the current production is four and a half times what current production in the, in the state is. And so a huge, huge, huge increase in, to a level that we really haven't seen before in modern California history, right? And so I wanted to, I did a story a few years back trying to get a sense of understanding what it might take to, to, for the governor to have a fighting chance of meeting his goals. And when I talked to a bunch of experts, they said, look, you know, three things we could, we could point out. We could point out making fundamental changes to the California Environmental Quality Act, fundamental changes to how Proposition 13 works, and also kind of reevaluating the relationship between state and local governments when it comes to approving housing. And so I think, you know, those are three things um, that probably still stand as uh, kind of an, a, an expert's view on what you might need to do to kind of get the level of overall housing production you may need in California to meet some of those goals and potentially ameliorate some of the, the housing problems that we have at a high level. Liam, this is a really complicated topic. Tell us what your approach has been to make it real and really boil it down for people so that it's understandable. I think it's to make always keep that in mind. Um, I think, you know, it's my job to talk to regular people. You know, I, I've often said in a lot of the jobs that I've had in journalism, particularly covering government and politics, is in some ways to see my role as a translator between kind of the bureaucratic language that is used in local government and state government, all forms of government, that in many ways is put there to kind of obfuscate what things intents are, intent are, um, and to be able to make that clear and um, uh, understandable to a regular person who just wants to try to f know, have some curiosity about why it costs so much to live here and why their rent's going up or why they're, why they're trying to buy a house and they can't afford it, right? And so I always try to keep that in mind when thinking about um, any particular policy proposal or what I need to hold politicians accountable for. It's that. You know, um, and so with that mindset, I think is uh, kind of, again, the way that I try to approach really every story that I write is what can a regular person take away from this and how will it help them understand better why we're in the situation that we're in? We we regular people appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Liam, yeah. you recently yeah. wrote a story about your own search for housing when you moved yeah. from L Sacramento to L.A. I'm sure you had some Correct. sticker shock there. So yeah. what surprised you about that experience? And even after all you've seen about the housing crisis, was it did it really blow your mind? So. I don't think I was surprised at seeing any of the numbers, right? I knew my rent was going to double and that's what it did, right? Roughly. Um, and that's, that, that was like, again, all under, under, I understood it all, but I think there's a level of like emotional resonance that you really can't get until you're living through it. Right. I have this Especially moment your where salary probably didn't double. I'm guessing. No, <laughs> definitely not. Right. So, so, um, uh, you know, I mean, I remember this moment after I had done an apart, my apartment search, I was sitting in a hotel, you know, in LA and lying on the bed, like coming to terms with, Oh my God, my rent is actually going to double. What is that going to mean? What's it going to look like? Like, how am I going to budget all these sorts of things? And, and it really just kind of overwhelms you, you know? I mean, so I, I wasn't, to answer your question, I wasn't surprised by, um, wasn't surprised by the numbers, but I think I had an, this, I was surprised or, or had this strong emotional reaction that I think is going to come with just this simple fact of you having to change how you kind of live your life in order to be able to afford the, the kind of, you know, a reasonable, you know, a kind of reasonable lifestyle that's not too far away from, you know, where I work. And I want also want to make clear, I try to do this in the story too, that, you know, 
it, yeah, like it, it's terrible to have your rent double, no matter what, like that's annoying. It's a shock. It's, it's, it's overwhelming, all those sorts of things. But you know, I, there are millions of renters in California that pay more than half their income on rent. Um, I am not one of those folks. And so you know, the problems that I'm having are, are far different and of a far different uh, level, if you will, than those who are really, really struggling day to day. And I hope that, you know, my coverage um, now and in the future is able to um, make those sorts of struggles um, clearer to perhaps a broader audience. So you're young, you're paying, I'm guessing, over $2,000. Uh, 20, I've already told everybody, so I'm happy to, happy to tell you guys too. So it's twenty two seventy a month. For a one bedroom. For a one bedroom, which of yeah. course you couldn't get in San Francisco. I just want to put that out. No, there. no, no, no. Not it's, it's possible. Probably, probably over three or something like that. Yeah. At least. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. People are sharing rooms. It's crazy. Right. Um, right. Let's talk about what can actually be done to begin to solve the problem. We don't have enough housing. We need to build more, especially housing that's affordable to middle income and lower income households, ideally close to where people work. Right. So... The, here's a multiple choice question for you, but you can pick all of the above as okay. well. So limited state enforcement ability, uh, this sort of NIMBY attitude. I don't want, I don't want that in my neighborhood construction issues. Um, other issues, all yeah. of the above. Yeah. So I would try to, I'm going to, I guess, enter with other, but in, in this way, um, I think, particularly in California, although uh, probably to, in a lot of extent um, extends the country at large, we have in, an incentive structure that's really screwed up. And I think trying to fix some of those incentives to make housing something that's more attractive for literally everybody who is getting in the game um, is probably the way to go. So let me try to give an example. Um, Prop 13 is, is an easy one um, in the sense that, you know, the way that the rules work is that local governments make a lot more tax revenue if they were to approve um, office construction or hotel construction compared to housing. Um, and so that's simply because of the restrictions where, um, it, you know, A, if you have people who are living in places, you have to provide them more services. So your net tax revenue is lower. Right. But the restriction to to local governments accessing accessing property taxes in the same way they could access other revenue because of the limits that Prop 13 puts on them. Uh, a, a practical example of this that I always use. There was a, a proposal in the city of Brisbane, which uh, literally on the border of San Francisco, it's a very small city. Most people think of it when they hear Brisbane, they think Australia, but there's actually a very small community literally just south of San Francisco called Brisbane, um, where there was a proposal um, to build a 4,400, and I might get these numbers slightly wrong, but this is roughly correct, 4,400 new homes and um, on what's now open land, right? And, and there was an analysis the city did where they tried to understand what, 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 how they would make out financially. And they did a random study. And if the developer's proposal um, were advanced with the 4,400 homes, they would have made 1 million net a year in new tax revenue. And their, their general fund budget, their day-to-day -day budget is roughly $16 million, right? So um, uh, 1 million net, so not small, right? But they also asked the consultant to run an additional analysis just to see what would happen if they proposed, if they approved the project with no housing, but a lot of retail and a big hotel. And it turns out they would have net about $9 million, right? An $8 million gap with a city with a budget of $16 million a year, right? And so huge, huge. And it's almost like financial malpractice to expect city leaders in that community to approve the housing project 
out of some sort of sense of altruism to, to deal, dealing with the um, the uh, housing problems that are in the Bay Area at large, right? And so that's just one example of an incentive structure that's screwed up whereby, um, uh, you know, it makes it hard to approve or to get people to decide that they want to have housing in their community. I'll give, I'll give one more and then, and then we'll move on. You know, when you have these approvals for individual projects, oftentimes you have the neighbors for those projects who come to the city council meetings or planning commission meetings and talk about the impacts that these, that this project would have for them. Right. Um, but almost by definition, there's no voting choice for the future residents of the of this community that would actually be the ones who are benefiting the most. Right. And so how would someone if they're living now in Turlock, you know, and has to commute in every day to um, to Oakland or to San Francisco or to um, or to somewhere in Silicon Valley? Right. They don't and they would benefit from that housing project in that neighborhood in in in, in San Francisco. Right. Uh, they don't get a vote over whether that project is built or not. And that's another example of the incentives in this system, particularly here in California, being being biased, if you will, against the production of new housing, whether it's market rate or affordable or anything in between. Fascinating. Liam, what's your relationship with the governor like? I know you've held him to account as much as anyone on his campaign pledges to boost housing production. What's it like when the two of you are sitting across a table? Well, it's funny. It's funny. You think that we sit across a table. Um, so I've actually never actually never uh, had an in-person interview with the governor. That, uh, and I'm very complimentary uh, of that. They gave me about 20 minutes um, on the phone um, for the story. I think that you're referencing where I examined um, sort of how he did in his first year on uh, on, on meeting his housing promises. Um, and, and and again, to be clear, um, the previous governor, Jerry Brown, I was never able to do a one on one interview with him uh, about housing or really anything else. Right. So um, so I'm appreciative of, of being able to have that access and being able to ask those questions. Um, I think, though, um, there is a sense with him that he feels like and his office feels like they've done a lot. Um, and I think that is absolutely true if you look at the comparison to him and his predecessor. Right. Um, but I, I think when you compare him to the promises he's made, he's really, really, really far behind. Um, and, and so, you know, my view is that you want to hold, um, uh, you know, the guy in charge accountable to what they said they were going to do, number one. Um, and number two, um, hold them accountable to are they solving the problem? Right. Um, and I think, you know, on both of those uh, uh, accounts, um, you know, there's a lot of work to do um, that. And he has promised to try to do it. And so, um, you know, I, I think for that reason, um, perhaps they're not always the most fond of of, of the reporting that, that I'm doing in this area. But I feel like that's that's sort of what uh, the kind of standards that we should all be holding um, those in charge for. That's your job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've been covering the state's response to the housing crisis for several years worth of housing packages. Yeah. What does all this legislation add up to? Are we making incremental steps towards solving the problem? Well, I think if you, again, if you zoom out, there are a lot of things that are different now than they were um, in you know 2016. I think is when there started to be a little bit of energy towards um, towards uh, addressing this in a, in a comprehensive 
way. Um, so uh, right now, uh, let's see. So right now, there's now a prohibition on uh, increasing rents uh, annually more than um, eight or nine percent, depending on the year. Right. Um, that was newly, newly passed legislation that 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 occurred this year. Um, there's been tremendous amount of of development in the sense of allowing people to add uh, second units. Uh, I like to call them casitas uh, on their properties. A lot of new bills have passed in that area uh, since 2016. Um, there has been some change in terms of the um, uh, pretty large change in terms of the amount of housing that cities have to zone for according to the sort of state kind of kind of Byzantine state process um, that uh, that occurs every eight years that requires cities to set aside enough land in their communities for a certain uh, a certain amount of new homes um, those that 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 process has now increased that number significantly uh, substantially um, there's been some some increase in funding certainly since um, certainly a lot since the end I think a lot of people in the affordable housing community remember days of redevelopment um, which is a program that allowed local governments to set aside property tax dollars to help uh, fund low-income housing, among other things. Um, that program was ended in uh, uh, the, the early part of the uh, previous uh, gubernatorial administration under Jerry Brown. Um, there's that, that program has not come back, but there's a lot more money now in an affordable housing that the state's providing than you know back when that program was ended. So more money. Um, so there have been a lot of a lot of changes. Whether, what that's amounting to on the ground, though, is, you know, un, un, unfortunate. I mean, I, I think that there has not really been, however, the kind of fundamental um, um, uh, uh, changes to how the state does business that perhaps some may say is needed to really get to the underlying problems that we have. One of the biggest ideas that hasn't moved forward yet are Senator Scott Wiener's proposals in SB 50 that would increase the density of housing development all over the state. So this will be the third year in a row that legislators um, have considered this bill. Why do you think it hasn't succeeded yet? And do you think 2000, uh, you know, 2020 will be the year? Well, I, I hasn't succeeded because it, it, it really strikes at the heart of one of the major issues that we have in the state, which is that um, forever time immemorial, uh, local governments have been in charge of allowing or deciding what's going to be built in their communities or not. Uh, almost exclusively, right? I mentioned some of the state laws that require land set aside, things like that, but pretty much the local governments have been in charge. And this would really cut at that, um, cut at that power. And so no one likes it when you take power away from them, right? I think that's a kind of a, a basic thing. I think um, there were some changes to the to the bill. So I did kind of two postmortems, um, and this were not really exclusively the case in, in, in both situations, but I think really my effort was to try to explain kind of the top reason why certain pro certain or this bill failed, right? So the first year, 2018, I, I found a really um, uh, um, stark contrast between what the bill's proponents said the bill was, who the bill's proponents said it was going to help. So there was, we're going to allow for the, the building of more um, housing near transit. Um, and this will help um, everybody, including low-income folks, because there will be more, 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 more building, right? There'll be some set aside for, for uh, inclusionary to require some of this housing to be specifically for low-income residents, but there'll just be more building. And what, what struck me is that process moved its way forward. This is in early 2018. 
and that first version of the bill was that there was not a lot of groups representing uh, low-income residents or low-income tenants uh, around the state standing up and said, yes, this is going to help me, right? Um, and so, you know, that was a huge, in my mind, disconnect between the, the bill's author and proponents and what the reality was. And so, you know, the bill failed its first hearing, and I think that that disconnect was, you know, was a large part of it. Fast forward to 2019, and what you had was... Um, uh, uh, from many of those same groups, low-income equity groups, um, a bit of more of a wait-and-see approach, right? Obviously, there were still groups uh, in, 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 in that area that were opposed, but a lot of them were in kind of wait-and-see, let's negotiate, let's think about this a little bit more. And in its place, you found a really robust and new network of predominantly suburban homeowner groups, uh, wealthier, um, who organized in a way that I hadn't seen before to oppose this um, bill. Uh, and this was SB 50 with the second iteration in 2019. And so you saw how the bill got changed and shaped by um, lawmakers who represented those kind of wealthier suburban communities. And, you know, to get through its, a, a, an early hearing and had to make uh, concessions to uh, Senator McGuire, who represents, you know, Sonoma and Marin counties, right? Um, wealthier areas in, 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 uh, in uh, the Bay Area. Um, and so there were some concessions that treated those those communities differently um, and were less intense, right? And then the bill was killed uh, or held rather in a committee rep that represented by um, uh, Anthony Portentino, who represents La Canada Flint Ridge, a wealthy kind of bedroom community in the Los Angeles area, representing some of those same concerns that the suburban homeowner groups had. And so um, I don't know. I mean, I've always thought, and speaking fast forwarding to what's going to happen this coming year, um, these are the kind of fights that if you leave bills to their own devices, they're working their way through the legislature, they're just not going to pass because they're calling for a change that's so fundamental. The only thing that really changes that dynamic is if you have leadership, whether it's legislative leadership, so this uh, leader of the state Senate or the speaker of the assembly saying, look, this is getting through. Um, or you and or you have the governor making it a priority. And I think in this case, um, at least with SB 50 for 2019, there, that, that kind of push from leadership, whether on the gubernatorial side or the legislative side, just wasn't there. And so given that that wasn't there, what happened to that bill was expected. I think the big question is the extent to which leadership is going to get involved in in this fight in 2020. And they've given some signals, I think, that they're certainly going to be more involved than they were in the past. But we'll see ultimately uh, how that ends up. But it's an election year. So the question is, we've got ballot measures. We've That's got a right. presidential race, a legislature right. full of members who are running for re-election. Yeah. You know, is are they going to avoid the hottest you know, the hottest uh, balls, right? You know, the... You know, I think you're right. I think, I think, I think certainly uh, you can make an argument politically as this bill would have been much easier to pass last year than it is in the coming year, for sure. So what do you think the single most important policy obstacle is that'll need to be knocked down before the state can actually solve its housing problems? Well... Um, I saved the best for last. Right, right, right. I, I think uh, to go back, I think it's to the incentives, right? You have to make it in people's interest um, to uh, accept housing in some way, right? And I don't know the best way you do that, right? But I think the incentives are all misaligned. And unless and until you fix that, you're not going to solve this problem. And because when it comes down to it, even if the state were to, you know, uh, you know, I think that, that, that the 
one of the reasons why the state's previous efforts to address some of these housing problems have failed. Um, you know, I, I did a story a couple of years ago, a, a deep dive into trying to understand why this kind of hate state uh, housing goal process, right, which I've referenced a few times, has not been effective in uh, in uh, allowing for the amount of building that um, that sort of uh, it ca has called for around the state, right? Um, and that's because you know how is this? How are state bureaucrats supposed to understand what could be built on every single parcel of land in the state, right? It's impossible, right? And so to have to have some way for local governments, even if you're taking some of their power away, to have some buy-in for this process, because there's going to be innumerable ways. Um, and particularly the communities that have the resources to fight these sorts of things um, to stop stop it unless you make it worth their while in some way. And I don't know the best way to do that. But implementation, it, the state, even if the state takes a lot of power away, they're not going. There's still going to be many, many obstacles to, to homes getting built um, uh, uh, unless local governments and, and people in neighborhoods decide that this is something that they want. Great. Liam, thanks so much for your insights today. It's been really interesting. And thanks for making the time to speak with me and share your thoughts. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Liam Dillon is the housing reporter for the LA Times and also co-host of the podcast, Gimme Shelter. I'm Joanne Green. To hear more episodes of the Affordable Housing Podcast, please check us out on any standard podcast platform and be sure to visit us at edenhousing.org. Wow.